Eleven days ago, I was in a conference room in a hotel in Tel Aviv, and at the end of the table sat a woman that I've come to call the Judy Dench of South Africa. Her name's Robbie. She's a South African Jew who moved to Israel a while ago. Sitting next to her was a Palestinian Muslim man named Bassam, and we were there to hear their stories. So Robbie began. And you lean in a little bit, right, when you see a, an Israeli Jew and a Palestinian Muslim sitting side by side in a place in the world where more often those identities would lead to people who are apart from one another or against each other. And yet there they are sitting side by side, and they're clearly uh, dear friends. And then they begin to tell the stories that have brought their lives together. And so Robbie begins, and she reads a letter to her son. And the reason she's written a letter to her son, she's actually written uh, many letters to her son, is because she misses him, because uh, he died uh, a while ago. Her son, uh, like every Israeli, was conscripted into compulsory military service, and while manning a checkpoint in the West Bank, was uh, sniped by a Palestinian who simply went out one day to kill Israelis. And so she read us the letter that she'd written to her son, that she uh, misses him very much, and she talked about her grief. And then uh, she handed things over to Bassam, and Bassam told us his story. And Bassam also has a gaping hole in his life. In his case, it's the place where his 12-year-old daughter was. And uh, one day, in a crowd control measure, uh, Israeli Defense Force uh, soldiers fired rubber bullets. And by rubber bullets, they actually mean real bullets that are encased in about a millimeter of rubber, which we held while we were there. And his 12-year-old daughter was shot, and two days later, she died in the hospital. And so they sat there and they told their stories, and part of what they've done is they've decided to move toward one another in their grief, and they're part of a program called the Parents' Circle, where bereaved parents from both sides of the conflict have found their grief uh, to bind them in peace rather than to move them against each other. And so we heard their stories, and I was sitting there trying to hold my um, emotions together, and at the same time having the bizarrest um, memory of something that had happened just two days earlier on the trip. So two days before this conference room moment in Tel Aviv with Ravi and Bassam, we're out on the Sea of Galilee, which is like one of the places where a bunch of the Jesus story happened, right? And so you're there on the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, is more like a pond of Galilee. It's not nearly as big as you'd think. Anyway, but you're there on the Sea of Galilee, and this is like one of the holy sites, right? This is the place where a lot of American uh, Christian tourists would go to sort of have an experience with God. And so our trip, uh, the, the itinerary that I was a part of was um, almost entirely uh, conflict education and immersion in the tensions that are going on there. But they always slip in a little bit of the the holy site stuff, the, the things that a lot of tourists go to see, just because partially we needed a break from all of the heaviness and because they didn't want to have us fly all the way over there without seeing some of those things. And so we're out there in the Sea of Galilee a couple days before we meet with Robbie and Bassam. And I've had this experience before, but I was just remembering the absurdity of it. Because you're on this, this kind of touristy wooden boat that they built. There's a bunch of them on the Sea of Galilee. And you go out for a sunset cruise. And while you're out there on the water, they play Shout to the Lord, the 1990s worship hit that some of you remember all too well. And then the next thing that happens, I'm not kidding, is they get done with Shout to the Lord, and then you hear a voice over the microphone, and it's the captain of this little vessel that you were on that's sort of out there in the water in the Sea of Galilee at sunset, and he starts making a pitch for merch. 
And so they bust out. They got Sea of Galilee salts and Sea of Galilee t-shirts. I was on the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Galilee hats. And people get up and start buying this stuff. And it feels like it's out of an SNL sketch. It's like reality is stranger than parody at that moment. And I'm sitting there with Robbie and Bassam hearing um, the very profound stories of pain that they offer of their experience of real conflict in the modern world. And I'm thinking about that ludicrous moment on the Sea of Galilee with a contemporary Christian song on the speakers and then merch. And I'm just feeling the tension of all of those things. And I'm remembering that um, one of the strangest things about going over to the place that we call the Holy Land is that, at least for me, the quote-unquote holy sites are often, um, they feel the farthest from anything holy for me. Um, there's actually, there's actually a, a word for this, by the way. Look up Jerusalem syndrome. This is an actual sort of catalog phenomenon that people go over. They're expecting an encounter with the holy when they go to the Church of Holy Sepulchre or the Old City or the Temple Mount or they go to Capernaum where there's something like Peter's house or they go to Nazareth to the Church of the Annunciation, which is built over an old stone cavern that seems to be where Mary might have actually lived. Or you go to the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem and you wait in a very long line and work your way down into a cavern where you're supposed to touch the stone that supposedly is the actual place where Jesus was born. You have these quote-unquote holy sites, and my experience has been that they don't really do much for me, actually. And if, they, if you've been there and they do something for you, that's great. I'm glad. Like, that's really beautiful. But they haven't for me. And as I'm sitting there with Robbie and Bassam, and I'm thinking about um, all the ways and places in the world that I see souls breaking and systems breaking, like it feels like the whole world is breaking, the places I go where you sense like it's like the cosmos is breaking somehow. And I think about those places, and then I think about these sort of historical artifacts or moments in the past where the church remembers uh, where Jesus walked or did the things that we believe he did. And it strikes me that in a moment where a mother is telling me about the loss of her son and a father is telling me about the loss of her daughter, that I need to believe in a God who um, wasn't just here 2,000 years ago, but a God who's here right now. And I need to believe in a way of life available to us that we are invited into that actually has something to do with the way that the world is breaking right now, the way that our souls break, the way that our systems break, the way the whole cosmos seems to break. I need something for the here and now. And so uh, I go over there less um, to see the holy sites and more um, to try to learn something in the here and now about the way of Jesus and whether there's anything um, there that I can get my hands on. Um, to teach me and breathe into my spirit and remind me that God is here in the here and now. We've been talking about pictures and practices of the kingdom of God. And one of our contentions, one of our big ideas here is that the kingdom of God is so good and generous and available in the here and now that it can overcome, overwhelm any deficit of character or circumstance or spirit. And I actually believe that not just for individual lives, but I also believe it for the systems that we create and the world that we are building together. I believe it at all of these levels that the kingdom of God is so good and generous and available that it can overcome or overwhelm any deficit of character or circumstance or spirit. And so I want us to keep hearing that, keep working that out together. I want to be a part of a community that keeps taking that seriously, that keeps asking itself, what is that like then? How do we open our lives to it? How do we follow Jesus into it? What does it look like in the here and now? Because I don't just need stories from 2,000 years ago. I need something today. And you 
you might too, which is why we keep asking Jesus to teach us about the kingdom of God and the here and now. And today I want to um, look at one or two more pictures of that kingdom that show up in the New Testament. One or two more, more pictures of what it's like not just to hear the invitation, but to actually follow Jesus into that kingdom. And the pictures I want to look at today, they might be ones that are a little less obvious. So there's some places in the New Testament where Jesus says something really straight, like the kingdom of God is like dot, dot, dot. And then he'll give you a parable, a story. He'll, he'll like be really explicit. I'm giving you a picture of the kingdom of God now, right? But in fact, if, if you sit with the text for a little bit, if you maybe do a little bit of study on it, you realize th there's a bunch of pictures of the kingdom of God that are being given to us through the text. And some of them uh, would have perhaps been the most obvious to its original audience and the least obvious to us today. And I want to start with one of those pictures of life in the kingdom. Not just what's the invitation, but what is it like as you respond to it and you walk into it, as you actually surrender and then, and then live the life of following Jesus in that kingdom, what does it actually feel like? What, what's the experience of that like? I think that shows that, for example, in uh, what to us might be a subtle picture sort of lurking within the early pages of Matthew's gospel, one of the stories of Jesus. So Matthew is originally writing for a very Jewish audience. They have a Jewish memory. They have a Jewish spirituality. They have Jewish theology. And he's cashing in on all of that to tell the story about Jesus and the kingdom that he invites us into. Now, early in Matthew's gospel, we see um, that these magi, these wise men from the east, have traveled and they've heard that a king of the Jews is being born. And perhaps a bit naively, they go to Herod, the king of the Jews, and say, hey, did you hear there's a competitor coming on the scene? Which doesn't go very well. And Herod sends the Magi away, and then feeling threatened, he orders the execution of all of the boys who've been born in the time frame that might threaten his kingdom. That's the backdrop for what we read here in Matthew. Uh, when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Jesus' father, in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Jesus and his family find themselves down in Egypt. Next slide. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a throwback to Hosea 11 verse 1. That's one of the Old Testament prophets. And Hosea is throwing back to one of the early experiences of faith that the Jewish people have in their history this is what we call the Exodus. Now, if you've been around for a bit in our community, you've probably heard us try to connect these dots before. We do this because it's not just one of the ideas in Scripture. It's sort of a primary idea in Scripture for who God is and what God's doing and, and what Jesus' story means. It's one of those primary callbacks that we need to pay attention to. So again, this might be a bit of review. Maybe you've seen Prince of Egypt. You're already tracking with me. I know. Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. Any vintage fans? Okay, great. Awesome. Let's just remind ourselves of the basic contours of that Exodus story, because what we have in Exodus is a sort of ragtag family who find themselves in a rural place during a period of famine, and during the famine, they come into the more sort of organized society of Egypt to enjoy the provision that that society has to get them through the famine. 
And so they're there, they're sort of foreigners in the midst of the Egyptians. And for a while that goes okay because the foreigners have an inside man in the government who's looking out for them. But then several generations pass, that Hebrew family gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The favor that they had among the governing types has been lost since their man on the inside is no longer alive. And a new Pharaoh looks at these foreigners in their midst and sees a threat. And so this new Pharaoh says, like, for example, what happens if an outside enemy comes against Egypt? What if these insiders, what if these people who are sort of in our society but not us, what if they rise up against us and join the enemy at our gates? And so you have uh, xenophobia, you have um, a concern about the migrants who are in our midst, and if you're hearing overtones of the current world, you're not wrong. But you have a people uh, who then become enslaved. The Pharaoh decides that we will break the backs of the Israelite people, these Hebrew this Hebrew family that is here in our midst will break their backs with slavery, will own them, will take away any sense of identity or freedom that they've had, and slavery becomes their experience for generation after generation after generation. Then you might know the next part of the story, right? This is uh, like where the songs are sung in the animated films, right? Uh, but something, something stirs up inside the Israelite children in Egypt, and this is fascinating to me. So the only identity that they've known for generations is slavery. They've not known anything like freedom. This is a status quo that you might think that they would just surrender to, that they would just resign themselves to. Slavery is just the way things are for us. It's the way things have always been for us. It's the way things will always be. But they don't resign themselves to that. It's as if something within them lingers, something within them remains alive enough to rise up and cry out and say, no, this is not the way things are. This is not the way that things have to be. We don't have to stick with this fate. We don't have to simply resign ourselves to slavery. We could cry out and ask God for freedom and God hears their cry and does dramatic things and liberates them from their slavery in Egypt. This is the backstory on Matthew 2. When Matthew talks about Jesus, going down into Egypt and coming up out of Egypt. And when he quotes Hosea 11, which throws back to that story, this is Matthew's way of saying, everything you know about the Exodus experience is playing itself out in Jesus. Everything you know about the Exodus experience illuminates the kingdom of God experience that Jesus is trying to not only describe and enact, but he's trying to bring you into. So if you've ever had anything alive in you that cries out against whatever is enslaved in you, if you've ever had anything in you that says, I think I'm supposed to be free, but I'm not, if you've ever had any experience like that, it might be a sign to you that these aren't just old stories, but that these are living, breathing experiences for the here and now. So Matthew says to his Jewish audience, that's not just history. There's something about that story that applies to you right now. And maybe you feel like all you've ever known is slavery but there's freedom available, and God wants to actually lead you into it. Just right around the corner, we fast forward to the adult Jesus, where we read this in the text. Uh, Jesus, uh, his cousin John is, by the way, out there in the wilderness in the Jordan River. And by the way, the Jordan River is the last thing that the Israelites passed through on their way to the promised land. And uh, Jesus goes out there to enact in his own life, in his own body, the very same thing that he's inviting us into. And so Jesus goes out to the wilderness and is baptized. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, which for the original audience would ring all sorts of bells about the Red Sea and the Jordan River and moments of liberation. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Now, this is not the first time the text has ever imagined that God would look at humanity and use the language of fathering, that God would look at men and women and see sons and daughters. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, when God is telling Moses, I'm going to use you to liberate these people. In Exodus 4, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. It appears that it's not a new idea to God that he would look upon humanity as beloved sons and daughters. It appears that this is actually the way he has often been talking about you and me, every human being that walks on planet earth. And so uh, sort of calling that back and bringing it forward, Jesus comes up out of the water and hears, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is like a dramatic moment. Not unlike perhaps um, the moment where the Israelites found that uh, Passover was happening for them and they were being liberated out of Egypt. After uh, waiting and longing and crying out, the Israelites find like in a decisive moment of divine action, they are being liberated. And Jesus here, he's lived his sort of childhood life and he's coming into his adulthood, into his ministry. And even Jesus knows the experience of a, of a moment when he comes up out of the water and he hears the voice of God the Father who says, this is my beloved son. This is a powerful moment. I call this out because I, I think um, the experience of the kingdom of God will have a moment in it for you. It will have a moment where you know that you are being made free. It will have a moment where you know that you are being invited to liberation. You will have a moment where you know that whatever part of yourself has not resigned itself to the slavery that you are struggling with, that that part is actually telling the truth and that that will perhaps inspire a cry that God will respond to. There will be a moment. I think that that's reasonable to expect as we follow Jesus into the life of this kingdom that is so good and generous and available that it could overcome any deficit of character or circumstance or spirit. There will be a moment. But then there's the next thing that happens. And I call this out because I want us to have um, a, a fuller and fuller picture of the life of the kingdom. So Jesus has this dramatic moment. The spirit of God descends like a dove. Heaven opens up and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then we read this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <laughs> and every time I read that, it feels like wah, wah. <laughs> and I call that out because um, the life of the kingdom of God, I believe it will have a moment. It'll probably have several moments along the way, but there will be a moment where, where you hear the invitation and your soul rises up to say yes and you trust that God is inviting you into some kind of liberation, more on the nature of that liberation in a moment, but there will be a moment. But then on the other side of that moment, there will probably be a long walk and both of those things belong. I, I tell you this because I think the life in the kingdom will both be moment and process. And if we get rid of either of those things, we might miss the full experience. We might wonder if we've done something wrong. It'll be a moment and a process. And now a story that I've told you before about moment and process because um, it helps me. So just deal with it, okay? Uh, so years ago, I had a roommate uh, who was cooler than me and a little manlier than me, and so I was taking notes, right? It's like, oh, that's how you do that, right? And at one point, this roommate of mine, his name is Nick, Nick decides to buy a motorcycle. So Nick goes on Cycle Trader, and he finds that in rural Indiana, about an hour away, there's a beautiful Honda 750 Cruiser that is exactly what he wants. And he asked me if I will drive him out to the person's house that owns the motorcycle so he can inspect the bike, possibly buy it, and ride it home that night. So we hop in my car, and we drive about an hour out of town in the evening after work, and we get to rural Indiana, where we pull up to a man's house, and he opens the garage door, and there is this bike. 
It's gleaming. It's in mint condition. He's ridden a little bit, but his wife had a problem with the oil enterprise, so he has to move on. So he's selling the bike. And Nick kicks the tires and looks around it a little bit and decides this is exactly the right thing for me, and he buys the motorcycle. And so from there to the house back in South Bend, Nick rides in front of me on the open road. Uh, this is golden hour. Anybody know what golden hour is? Photographers love this. It's the last hour before sunset uh, where everything gets painted with that warm sort of color that the sun gives and the shadows stretch just a little bit and all of a sudden you're like, rural Indiana is like the French Riviera, baby. Like it's beautiful, right? And so we're on these winding rural roads and I see Nick out there on his motorcycle and the thought I have, the deepest sensation I have is that looks like freedom and I want it. So I come home and I decide to shop for my own motorcycle. I just have this like lingering like taste in my mouth, this feeling of freedom that I saw, like just, just a man and his bike on the open road, and I want to experience that. So I go, but I'm aware that I'm not quite as cool and not quite the man that Nick is, and so instead of a 750, I look for a 250, which is a little itty-bitty bike called a Honda Rebel, and I find one in Wisconsin on Cycle Trader that's going to be shipped to me. So I'm counting down the days, the weeks. It takes quite a while, apparently, to ship a motorcycle. So I'm waiting and waiting. I'm like the Amazon kid. I'm like, is it not here tomorrow? Like, can we do something about that? But weeks later, my freedom arrives. So I get a phone call, and there's a semi that is delivering uh, motorcycles throughout the Midwest on its way from Wisconsin to Ohio. And they're passing through South Bend. And they said they're going to be ready to deliver my bike in just a bit. Now, at that point in my life, I live in River Park on one of those narrow, numbered cross streets with cars along both sides of the street and power lines overhead. So semi-driver is smart enough to realize he shouldn't try to bring his truck down the street. And instead, he parks on Mishawaka Avenue, which is the main thoroughfare through River Park that intersects perpendicularly all of those numbered streets. So I leave the front door of my house, and I see the semi sort of around the corner and down on Mishawaka Avenue. And I walk out to the vessel that will deliver my freedom. And he opens the back of the truck. And there's two levels in the truck, and he uses a hydraulic lift to go up and back into the, the front of the truck, and he finds my little Honda Rebel 250, and he brings it out to the lift, and he pulls it down to the gate, and he brings it down the ramp down to the street. And there is my freedom. You know what I mean? I mean, it's gleaming a little bit. It looks more beautiful than I imagined. I was like, I didn't know that a man could have feelings like this for a bike, but here I am. You know, I'm, I'm like trying to integrate all of that. I'm just, like, I'm just like taking it in for a moment, and the truck driver says to me, Go ahead and start it up. Make sure it works. I'm like, could you give me a moment, right? Like, <laughs> please, like, I'm, I'm having a moment with my freedom, like this bike, this gift that's going to make my life completely different. I'm finally going to feel as cool as Nick, and I'm going to be more of a man. So I'm looking at my bike, thinking about my freedom that is right here in front of me. And he says again, he says, please go ahead and start it up and make sure it works. And I'm like, I'm starting to drool a little bit, you know, and I'm just kind of savoring the moment. And he says again, go ahead and start up the bike and make sure it works. And this is the first time it dawns on me that I don't know how to start a motorcycle. <laughs> so I look at the truck driver, and he looks like a truck driver. You know, like if Nick is manlier than me, this dude's manlier than Nick. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and he's kind of in a hurry, and I can tell he's growing impatient with me. And I say, um, I, I don't know how to start a motorcycle, sir. And so he looks at my skinny jeans and my deep V, and he snorts a little bit, sneers at me, and he gets on the bike, and he starts my freedom for me. <laughs> bike runs great, and so then I'm, I'm, I'm at the motorcycle on Mishawaka Avenue, and I'm, I look over to my house, which is like 100 yards that way across a busy street, and I look at the motorcycle, and I look at the house, 
Look at the motorcycle and the house, and then he snorts at me again, and he says, you're going to need me to ride this to your house, aren't you? <laughs> and I say, yes, sir, please. And so he rides my freedom and takes it into the garage. That night, my buddy Nick gets home, and it's time to teach me how to ride a motorcycle. So we bring the bike out onto that crowded, narrow street in River Park, which is lined on both sides with cars. And he says, we're just going to idle. We're just going to turn it on, idle. You're not going to open the throttle or anything. You're just going to sit on it and let it kind of idle down the street and get used to the feeling of the freedom that this motorcycle will provide for you. So we get on the bike, and it starts to idle down the street, but it actually starts idling a bit quickly. And this is when I discovered that an idiot designed motorcycles. If you haven't ridden a motorcycle, you may not be aware that the thing that you do to stop the motorcycle is almost exactly the same thing that you do to make it go faster. <laughs> and so it starts going a little faster than I want it to, and I try to stop it, and I open up the throttle all the way, and I stop about an inch before I plaster my face into a car on my street. Mom's in the room. Relax, Mom. Everything's fine. So we decided to put the motorcycle back in the garage, and then later that day, Nick rides my freedom up to the church where I was working at the time. We hide it around the corner of the building, and I spend the next two weeks idling in the parking lot of my church before I can finally acquire my freedom. <laughs> I tell you this very dumb story that some of you have heard before, uh, because it's actually really helpful to me to get concrete about one particular thing. Uh, that freedom acquired and freedom mastered are two different things that there are moments and processes and that both belong in the life of the kingdom of God. And there will be a moment, there will probably be several moments along your way, there will be a moment where you, you open up, you realize, you say yes. Enough of you trust enough of that promise that you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus into the life of that kingdom. And then there will be processes you might go down under the water and come back up, and you might hear the voice of God saying, beloved daughter, beloved son, it'll be really good. And then the next day, it might feel like you're in the wilderness. And I think Matthew is telling us, that's exactly the way it goes. Don't worry. We're going to do this together. That's what this life in the kingdom is like. Moments and processes, we say yes, and then we keep finding our way toward that yes. And little by little, we learn to walk in the freedom that we've been given. Romans 6, a guy named Paul is writing, and he, he talks about um, exodus and freedom. You'll see some of these same images echoing here. Let me read to you. This is from a paraphrase called The Message, where Paul writes, if we've left the country, now watch what he does. This is brilliant. If we've left the country, that's an exodus metaphor. That's an Egypt thing, right? If we've left the country, but then watch what he does. Where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? So he assumes there was a moment where you said yes to walking away from that, yes to walking out of that world into a new world that Jesus is inviting you into. He assumes there's a moment, but then he recognizes that you and I will struggle to live up to that moment. There will be a working out of that moment. In a sense, we'll say we've already left that world and entered a new one with Christ. And in another sense, the apostle has to come along and say, hey, don't keep living there. You still have to learn about working out this freedom with Jesus in the here and now. He goes on. When we went under the water, here we have an, a Red Sea image, a Jordan River image, and a baptism image all wrapped up in one. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. And between those two passages, he clarifies exactly what he's talking about. Next slide. He says, this is what happened in baptism. 
He goes on to keep sort of building the layers of metaphor here, different images and mysteries as he writes next. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. That's a moment. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. That's a moment. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we are going in our new grace-sovereign country. There's a moment, and then we have to see where we are going in this new life, in this new land, this new reality that we've been invited into in the here and now. Moments and processes. Uh, You might be invited into a moment to say yes, and then there might be a beautiful, harrowing, day-by-day walk that we will walk together on the other side of that as we learn how to walk in the freedom that we've been granted, as we learn to say no to the slavery of sin and yes to new life, no to the world that we have been breaking, and yes to the ways that God might use us to put it back together. Uh, I, was, uh, I had uh, dinner with some Christians the other day. And they were really concerned. Um, they had a lot of questions for me. They were very, very concerned about nailing down the particular metaphysical mechanics with which I described the cross. And I, I don't know that I did a very good job of articulating it to them, but I kept saying, man, the scripture gives us all of these pictures, all these images. We have death and life and resurrection. We have new birth. We have exodus and liberation from slavery. We have debts that are paid. We have forgiveness. We have all of these images, all these pictures, and all of these practices, all these ways of wrapping our lives around this reality, around this promise. And it strikes me that that's what the scripture does when it is naming a mystery that can never be fully named but can always be lived into. The the writers of the scripture are grabbing every image and metaphor they can from the history of Israel and the current moment to say that right now in flesh and blood, you are being invited to trust that the kingdom of God is so good and generous and available that it can overcome or overwhelm any deficit of character or circumstance or spirit. We're talking about individual deficits in the soul and we're talking about systems and worlds that we are building. And the scripture seems to be grasping at every possible image to help us understand that it's for us, it's here, it's now. You need only say yes. There will be a moment and then a process. Uh, while we were meeting with Rabi and Bassam in Tel Aviv, Rabi described the moment where the soldiers came to her house and told her that her son had been murdered. And strangely, the first words out of her mouth were, you may not kill anyone in the name of my child. Later, she talked about learning uh, what forgiveness looks like as she has tried to actually forgive uh, the sniper who killed her son. And she said she has learned that forgiveness is when you give up your just right for revenge. She came by that honest. She came by that the hard way. And I remember sitting there thinking about the Sea of Galilee and how cheesy it was. And then sitting in a room with a woman who believes very few of the things that I actually believe about Jesus, and it just sounds exactly like Jesus. I was there thinking about how um, when the world is actually put back together, it always looks like Jesus. Like when things are actually being healed, it always looks like Jesus. And I really believe that, which is why I trust him when he invites us into the kingdom not just as a theological exercise, but as a lived reality in the here and now.